I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Jamil Jaffer. Jamil is Senior Vice President for Strategy, Partnerships, and Corporate Development at IronNet, a startup technology firm founded by former NSA Director General Keith Alexander. Prior to joining IronNet, Jamil served as the Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and Senior Counsel to the House Intelligence Committee, where he led the committee's oversight of NSA surveillance and wrote the original version of the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, signed into law in 2015. He also worked in the White House during the Bush administration as an associate counsel to the president and in the Justice Department, where he led the National Security Division's work on the president's comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative. In this episode, we discuss starting in legal, the government's role in cybersecurity, information sharing with real-time collaboration, automation, trend spotting, impacts to small businesses, cyber war, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Jamil, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Although we, just before we hit record, we're, we're saying that we're both seasoned enough veterans in cybersecurity that we're we're good at making the rules but not following them. So that's uh, that's an important aspect, I think, of what we do. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, it's always a challenge, which is uh, you know getting people to 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 do the right thing, but not only just because it's the right thing, but because it makes sense at the time. And that's always one of the challenges in this space, for sure. Oh yeah, and certainly. And you know, kind of talk about timing. I mean, you've been doing this now for for a while and seeing the kind of evolution of our industry. Kind of walk us through how you got started, because I think you got kind of an interesting, interesting background from tech to legal to government. So you, you've kind of seen a lot of the aspects of it. Yeah, well, thanks for asking. So you know, I, I have to I have to admit up front that I am a recovering lawyer, uh, which means that I'm stuck in the twelve step process of apologizing to people for all the bad things I did when I was a lawyer. That may go on for a while. Um, but, uh, but you know, I grew up a technology guy from from my from my roots. Uh, when I was uh, when I was growing up in the '80s, uh, my dad, my first computer uh, was bought me. My first computer was a TRS-80 color computer, right? The so-called Trash-80 Radio Shack computer. We had 4K of onboard RAM. Yeah, we had 4K of onboard RAM. And when we upgraded to 16K, uh, the Rainbow Computer Club, which we were part of, was like, "What are you guys going to do with 16K of RAM? That's so crazy! Like, that's so much memory, you know." That was back in the day when we stored programs on cassette tapes, and so uh, so it's pretty cool to you know see where we are today. And you know I've I've worked as you said you know in the law and policy over time, and and now at a cybersecurity startup. Um, and you know one of the things I've worked on is, is this idea of of bringing communities together, information sharing, threat sharing. Uh, that's an important part of the conversation we've been having about cybersecurity, and I, and I'd love to chat uh, more about that or whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, no, and that's a great segue. You know, I think a lot of it, you know, like again, you know, keying on where you've seen things from the technologist perspective, legal and government, 
I think historically and kind of going back to, you know, when I was reading all the online hacker forums back in the 90s and late 80s to 2600 magazine, there was there was definitely a distrust of government. And, you know, we're now it's like there's there's new policies coming out all the time. And it's like, well, I think the attitude has to change where we all have to kind of work together. But ha- have you seen that kind of evolution from your perspective of really kind of both sides of it? Yeah, well, look, I mean, look, I think it's healthy for um, for us as a people to have some measure of of skepticism about overweening government power, right? I mean, that's where our founders came from, right? They came from a very skeptical view of of a strong government. Uh, we saw that uh, when they moved here from England, right? They wanted to get away from a government that tried to tell them how to behave and how to think and how to think about their religion and the like. And so that's imbued in, in who we are as Americans at the same time, right? When we decide to come together as a society, just writ large as people, but also in particular the United States, what we said was, look, there are certain rules for the government to follow and certain liberties that they're going to protect, that that government's going to protect for us. And as long as we keep that bargain, right, this can be a, a reasonable operation. And so one of the deals that we made at early at the founding was that the government uh, would have the responsibility in, in exchange for tax money and the like uh, to be able to raise the military and defend the nation, right, defend our collective security. Um, and as a general matter, the nation's done a pretty good job of that, other than at times when we've had internal disputes, when it came externally, right, our government's done a good job of defending us. But what's weird about the cybersecurity arena is that unlike any other arena, right, in part because of the way it grew up and in part because of sort of our sort of libertarian ethos when it comes to computers and, and the Internet, um, the government hasn't really done a lot of defense when it comes to defending the nation's cyberspace, right? The government has said for a long time, you know, since 2012, when Leon Panetta, the Secretary of Defense under President Obama, said it, that it is the mission of the Department of Defense to defend the nation in cyberspace. And yet, I don't think you could talk to any company in America today who would say, oh, yeah, I'm well defended or defended at all by the government when it comes to cyberspace. To the contrary, we expect every company in the economy, uh, small, large, uh, technology, non-technology, to defend itself against all comers, whether nation states or individual hackers, uh, when it comes to cyberspace. So that's a little bit of a dichotomy. Because, of course, we don't expect small or big companies to defend themselves against Russian bear bombers coming over the horizon. That's a job for the government. Right. And I mean, it, 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 do we see that attitude shifting where – look, it's – the way I, I try to look at it, and maybe it's uh, wrong or you have a different view, but it's you know, it's a team sport, right? Um, we can sit there and wait for government policy people to make decisions and maybe not educated ones because we don't feed them the right information. We're probably not going to like the outcomes. But if we kind of fight for a seat at the table, we can steer it in our favor. We're not going to get 100% everything we want, but at least we had a chance to get some of our mission objectives listened to. No, you're exactly right. In fact, I think it's critical. The point you made right at the beginning of that question, right, this idea that it's a team sport, right? Today, we defend in silos. In fact, the silos are so small, they're basically individual companies, individual entities. Everybody is, uh, you know, sort of a man or a woman on an island standing alone to defend against these big nation state uh, and, and, and multinational uh, criminal hacker gangs, right? These entities, nation states in particular, but increasingly these criminal hacker gangs, um, have access to tools and capabilities and human and monetary resources that can outstrip those of an individual company, particularly when you think about the fact that most of these companies that are trying to defend themselves against hackers and nation-state threats, they're not in the business of cyber defense. They're in the business of providing a product or service to consumers or to other businesses. And so, you know, they don't have the capital or the wherewithal to defend themselves individually. And so it's got to be a team sport. It's got to be one company working with another company, one industry working with another industry. At times, industries working with government, if we're really going to have any chance of defending against some of these most capable actors out there, 
Um, and, and that's the challenge, right, is how do you bring people together in a way they can trust other people they don't necessarily know personally, right? Because, you know, at the personal level, right, I think, I think most chief information security officers would tell you, look, I've got great relationships with my quote-unquote rivals in industry. We share information all the time. When there's a threat, I ignore my lawyers. I call my friends and say, hey, you better watch out for this because that's the right thing to do. We got to operationalize those phone calls and that communication and that sharing and that collaborative form of defense in real time at the same speed the attackers are operating at today. If we're really a fan chance of defending ourselves in the modern arena. Well, it's a good point. And to draw kind of uh, topical parallels, I mean, with something like the spread of coronavirus, if everybody was just saying, hey, look, this is hitting, you know, my building or my business, and we're not going to talk about it because I don't want to look weak. It's just going to propagate the spread of it and hurt others and probably kind of blow back on us. So, I mean, is it what types of engagements and conversation do business leaders need to make and the public at large to you know, do this threat sharing and, and intelligence? Yeah, you know, what's interesting about about that is you're exactly right. It's got to start with threat sharing and intelligence sharing and having those conversations, right? And one, the first thing you got to do is get, you know, lawyers or recovering lawyers like me out of the room, right? And Congress passed a law back in 2015 that sort of said, look, we're going to create this safe space for information sharing companies with one another and to the extent you want to with the government. Um, now, so that's created sort of the safe legal space. Now, it's not, it hasn't yet happened at scale and speed yet. Um, and so the question is, is, well, why and how can we empower that information sharing? Um, and I think a lot of that involves, you know, building, building trust amongst companies and, um, and, and with people in between them to create that trust. So, you know, one of the things that we do at IronNet, uh, the cybersecurity company that I work for, which was started about four or five years ago by General Keith Alexander, the former director of NSA and the founding commander of U.S. Cyber Command, is we create that trust between companies by saying, look, you trust us because you pay us money to do this job for you. You know, these other guys trust us for the same reasons, right? Our entire goal is to share data between the two of you and help you find the threats that are affecting your networks, right, um, while building this trust relationship, right? And it is in our incentive to do so because if we don't do it right, either one of you are going to work with us. And so a lot of that helps having that private sector company in the middle sharing that data. And it just isn't just IronNet. There are other people that might do this. That's an important part of it, right? The other piece of it, though, is, you know, we've always, we, we've often, the conversation is often stopped when it comes to information sharing. Well, the key is to share information. But that's not true, right? Of course, information sharing is great, but only if you can do something with it and do something about it, right? And so, you know, the idea of having collective intelligence or collective security uh, is really important. But another piece of it is really having that collaborative defense, working together to defend one another in real time at machine speed, as they say. And one way to do that is to bring people together in a common environment and sort of have them fight together. In a lot of ways, the way that... Um, the way that individual gamers do today in, in, in online gaming systems, right? Work together to a common objective. If you can stop one over here, you can stop another over there. That's an important part of this collaboration. So the idea is it's not just collective defense through information sharing, but also, also collaborative defense through working together in real time at machine speed. And that brings a good point that we talk about, you know, things around machine learning, AI, obviously buzzwords as we're getting into RSA this year are going to be used pretty heavily again for about the third, third year in a row. You know, how does that work in conjunction with, uh, you know, kind of gray matter with the human capital? Because the, you know, the other side of that is we constantly talk about, oh, there's just, there's not enough people. And, you know, you kind of look at it two ways. There's there's things that machines can help assist us. I don't think it's ever going to replace. But, you know, where, where do we kind of like combine those efforts to decrease some of that skill shortage? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, and people often talk about 
AI machine learning, like it's going to substitute for humans. And, and, you know, maybe we'll get to the era one day when that happens, but we're nowhere near that, that place today, right? In a lot of ways, what AI and machine learning can really help us do, right, is make humans smarter and faster, as you say, and help us make up some of that gap, right, uh, in, in, in human skill sets. That being said, at the end of the day, it still comes down to people. So the question becomes, when people are, are hard to find, or people with these skill sets are hard to find, hard to recruit, hard to keep, as we know they are in the cybersecurity industry today, we know there's a huge skills gap. How do you as an individual company or an individual entity deal with that? And I think the answer, again, comes back to this idea of collaborative defense. If I can work together with my ostensible rival in the financial services industry or the energy industry or whatever it might be, we can work together. If they make a decision to stop a threat or to do something about this threat, I can take a look at that and, and evaluate that and decide whether to do it on my side too. I don't have to have 10 bodies looking at that problem. If they've handled that problem, I've handled this other problem. If we collaborate together in real time, that can allow me to leverage their security operations center. They can leverage mine. And so we're not both solving the same problem simultaneously, right? So that's a way to scale, right? In a lot of ways, uh, it takes advantage of the ideas that we've had for a long time in, in computing processes. The idea that if you're running parallel processes at the same time, you can get a lot more calculations done fast than if you run them seriatim in order, right? And so the same thing is true of, of cyber defense operations. We've never worked that way, but there's no reason we couldn't. Right. And it's, I mean, just to key in a little bit about your current role, I mean, I mean, it sounds like that's what Arnett's trying to do is try to gather, you know, you know, that, that wide, wide view of the playing field to get an idea of what's going on. Exactly right. And so that's that first piece of it, that idea of collective intelligence. If we can gather a lot of information, share it with one another and correlate it, identify threat trends that you wouldn't otherwise see if you only looked at your own data set, right? Like you said, if you're only looking in one building for the the, the coronavirus, it might be a small problem. But if I'm looking in, in 50 buildings across multiple states, across multiple countries, you might be able to identify a real trend that you wouldn't otherwise see in a single environment. That's the collective intelligence piece. And then on top of that, what you want to do to action is you want to build this collaborative defense. Okay, now that we know what the threat really is, and we're not just siloed in our one view, how do we all work together, right, and, and, and address these threats, you over in your area, me in my area, but leveraging your information and my information right, to work together to address this threat collectively. And that's really how you get ahead of it. That collective security, collective intelligence piece combined with this idea of this new idea of collaborative defense. Yeah, I mean, it still kind of comes down to that issue where everybody, you know, is still trying to key in on people and the metrics for response is, yes, you have your mean time to respond and recover, but what's your mean time to detect? You know, we're still seeing long 12 periods. And, you know, to that that kind of an analogy, going back to healthcare, you know, the one of the ones that stuck with me, again, I want to use like coronavirus or something else, but if every emergency room in the United States operated like a silo and siloed their information, we wouldn't be able to have that kind of meta-analysis of, oh my God, I see a trend. And trend spotting seems to be you know, something where our brains think we can do better than computers, but you know, there's just things that just pop up when you aggregate a lot of information. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and this idea that, you know, uh, we, we can't or shouldn't do this, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I think you're exactly right that we've got to look across these multiple data sets to really identify uh, the trends. And there's real power in that, in that ability. So if you can do it and do it effectively and share that information broadly, then you can go and take action on it and really get ahead of the threat. And you're exactly right. If every emergency room operated the way we do cyber defense today, uh, we'd be pretty vulnerable. And as it turns out, in the cyber arena, we are pretty vulnerable. 
And, and we're, we're still stuck at that stage of why aren't we sharing that information? Why are we then acting on it collectively? Um, you know, there's, there's the, the threats are the same. If you look across individual uh, companies in a single industry, the threats they see are very similar, right? Not exactly identical. And that's part of the key is how do you differentiate between something that's that's uh, that looks similar, but it's not. It's not the same thing. Right? Signatures won't help you get there. You need the sort of behavioral analysis, and the same is true across multiple industries, and the same is true across potentially multiple economies. And so, there are opportunities for countries to work together, industries to work together, and individual companies to work together. Um, even at a time when, even if you don't want to work with the government, and you're and you're 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 concerned that that might cause you problems. At least working together with other companies in your in your industry and across multiple sectors will help you scale your defense in a way that you can't today. And I do want to touch on something you just kind of hit on there too, you know, with with the countries, right? I mean, there's there's no doubt about it that there are nation state actors. The United States is one of them. I mean, we've had our equation group. Everybody has their groups that go out and whether it do espionage, criminal. There's some aspect of organized um, efforts at, at a state level. You know, what are how does that evolve? You know, you've been on the legal and, and policy side. Like, how does that evolve now? Where there's certainly these concerns that there could be, you know, whether it be North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, you know, that there's some existential threat to our networks that are going to be more coordinated, but go after critical systems. Is that something that we really have to be concerned about? Like, where do we rate that risk amongst all the other risks that are out there? Yeah, no, it's a really important point. I think that there's a few things to say about that. One, not all nation state activity is the same or, or even, you know, identical from the way they operate. Right? So if you think about the way that we think about the problem, we the United States is we're out there collecting intelligence information about what other countries are doing, what they might be thinking about, what we're doing uh, and the like. It's, it's the classic form of nation state intelligence. That is fundamentally different than what China has done to date, right? China, in a lot of ways, has built its economy, right, on stealing American intellectual property, right, and then using it for economic gain back at home. And so, you know, my my current CEO, General Alexander, when he was the director of NSA, referred to that as the greatest transfer of wealth in modern human history. And I think, think that's exactly right. And that's just different than what we do as a nation, right? Now, beyond that, though, the other thing to think about is the fact that you know, a lot of these other actors, whether you're talking about Iran or North Korea, first of all, they've gotten a lot better. They're rapidly rising up to, if not already in the first tier of nations. We've always known China, Russia, uh, the United States, top players in this space, right? The United Kingdom, right? But Iran and North Korea, who in some ways are a lot less deterrable uh, from a classic perspective, they're gaining these capabilities too. Even more interesting uh, is the fact that that nation state, non-nation state actors like criminal gangs, uh, are increasingly being used as proxies for nation states. And they're also organically getting their own access to this information, as you say, as things like Equation Group um, and Sauron and all these other capabilities that we've seen out there that are thought to be nation state capabilities. As those get out in the public domain, right, these these other non-nation state groups are learning how to use those capabilities and deploy them themselves and improving on that state-of-the-art technology, or at least state-of-the-art as it was, uh, back in the era it was created. So that's an interesting trend. The final trend I want to hit on in this space that's really important is that, you know, a lot of companies that you talk to in this space say, well, look, I'm not the target of nation state threats or big criminal hacker gangs. I'm not that important. I'm a small entity in the larger scheme of things. Well, what's important to remember about that is that the threat of collateral damage is huge. All you have to do is look at NotPetya, which was an attack by a very sophisticated actor, the Russian nation state, against another fairly sophisticated attack actor, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian private sector institutions, but you can see that the bulk of the damage, while it was very effective against Ukraine, was done to Western companies, right? Mondelez, Maersk, 
Rensa Bensiker, right? They each incurred hundreds of million dollars in damage and they weren't the targets of the attack. So collateral damage is a real thing. So even if you're not the target of a nation state attacker, you may still bear the brunt. And so you and your board of directors have got to account for the risk of that and take steps to protect yourself against those threats, even if you're not in the crosshairs of the, of the targeting entity. Right. And I, I think that's such a good point, too, because, look, I mean, we all know what nuclear fallout can look like from a nuclear war. But, you know, what's a cyber fallout? And we don't know. It, it could spread. I mean, there could be a couple lines of code that change the way something works on a global scale and at the rate it's going to expand is much higher. You know, at what point do we look at this in more conventional warfare terms of kinetic strike backs or, or levels of escalation. Um, is that a fear that you have? And I'm certainly, you know, the big thing that came out with the, the latest Iranian issues where there was a kinetic attack and then worries about cyber attacks and then we striking back with cyber. It, it's kind of now entered this, well, which, uh, which poison pill are we taking in this situation? No, you're exactly right that, you know, it, cyber is simply one tool in the toolkit across the spectrum of things a nation state might do. There are a lot of reasons why a country like Iran might hit us back in cyber, even though we've hit them in real space, right? Uh, one, it's it, you have sort of a plausible deniability, right? You, you actually may want people to know, hey, it was me. But you can at least publicly say, well, no, I wasn't. I, I'm not sure who did that. That was some other proxy, right? The same way the Iranians use proxies um, in the terrorism fight, whether that's Hezbollah, right, or, or the organizations that were attacking American soldiers back in 2011, 2012 in, in Iraq, right? Uh, Iran has the ability, and other nation states have the ability to sort of say, well, that's not me, that's some other some other entity. In addition to that, it also has the ability to be sort of scalable in a way that physical attacks aren't, right? Physical attacks are pretty binary, right? Yes, you can size the scope of the weapon or the detonation or whatever, but at some point you're deciding, I'm going to destroy property, kill people, whatever it might be. It's fairly binary. Cyber, though, can go from a nuisance, right, a DDoS attack, right, um, all the way up to destructive and disruptive activities and stuff where you can modify data where there can be huge consequences. And so, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there to ratchet up and down in real time and dynamically your cyber attack. And so uh, that is a real a real challenge that we have to account for in this space. Um, and, you know, on the on the flip side, right, are, should our is our response escalatory? How does that work? Right. That's another great question. And we're still thinking through that, I think, as a nation. But one of the things I think you can be assured of uh, in this space is that if you don't deter the enemy, they will continue to attack you. And part of our challenge in the cyber arena is we've done a great job talking about the threats we face. We've done we've done a pretty poor job of really deterring that activity, one, because we're not defending collectively, but two, because we haven't really taken the fight to those, guys, those who are attacking us, right, in a really aggressive way to say, look, here's where our red lines are, right? Here's what's going to happen if you cross them, and then when they do – we got to hit back, and we haven't done a good job of that, uh, you know, for a long time. And we've got to get better at that as a nation if we're going to deter more of this cyber activity. Yeah, there, there's a. I mean, then that gets into a lot of ethical, legal, philosophical arguments that folks have, um, and I've had them at conferences you know, about striking back. You know, what do you what do you do? And look, I mean, like in any any other type of space, whether it be real or cyber, there has to be certain levels of rules of engagement that things are going to. That folks are going to follow so it doesn't get into areas where um, it does escalate into weird areas and there's odd collateral damage. Right. And, and today we don't know really well what the rules of the road are in cyber. Um, you know, there have been, there's been an effort in an international effort. The Tallinn Manual, right, uh, was an effort by folks uh, uh, in the NATO community to come up with some rules of the road, uh, like, like the Geneva Conventions for Conventional Warfare uh, that apply to cyberspace. And those have 
those have you know largely been agreed to by mo- by a lot of nations. And there's a Tallinn 2.0 effort that's ongoing. Uh, so that's one of the streams of, F- of of sort of conversations taking place. At the same time, because as we talked about earlier, this is an area where the private sector and the public sector are sort of working together or are, are facing uh, threats that are similar from, you know, private sector entities are facing threats from public sector entities and vice versa. You know, private sector has, has, is in the role of defending where you typically would see the government, right? Those things are still uh, unclear how, how we ought to work together. And one of the keys here in the United States, at least, is, you know, where we have a commitment uh, to defending the nation, right, um, and where we don't want necessarily the government patrolling, quote unquote, the borders of the Internet, as though as though you could even identify what those were in the United States. Right. Even if you could, you wouldn't want that. It's not consistent with our sort of traditional views of of the role of the government. So the question then becomes, how can the private sector empower the government to do what it needs to do to defend the nation? At the same time, how can the government empower the private sector to do that first line defense? And that really comes down to the government being more willing to share information in real time with the private sector and the private sector being able to act on it in a collaborative way where they're sort of mimicking what a government would do if the government were actually doing its its job to defend the nation. That makes a lot of sense, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it's just kind of through that process. You know, with that, too, you know, with Again, it kind of goes back to that that mentality where, where I guess we touched on a couple of times that small, medium-sized businesses and organizations where, um, let's see, almost 100% of my incident response and data breach work has has been over the past couple of years has been in that space. You know, and they they still have this mentality of it's not going to happen to me. It can't happen to me. Um, you know, what do you what do you when you're in discussions with with these organizations and yeah. whether it be a CISO, director of IT security, how do you say, look, you know, you you are a target. Yeah, I think part of it is um, I think they are increasingly realizing that even if they're not the targets, right, that they may be affected. And I think they're actually fighting mm-hmm. internal battles within sense. their organizations to say, hey, look, board, C-suite, this is a real thing. You know, you you got to help me out here. You can't put me on the line alone defending this thing. We need resources. We need capabilities. And look, you know, the C-suite and the board are in a tough position because they can't dedicate the kind of resources it would take to defend every single small and medium-sized business against the most serious threats. If they were to do that, they wouldn't be in business, right? They wouldn't be able to build the product they need to build, deliver the service they need to deliver it, or at least if they could, they'd have to deliver it at a price that the market wouldn't be willing to pay, right? And so everyone's in a quandary, right? And, and one way, I think, to address that quandary is, one, you've got to have better educated boards, better educated C-suites. Um, and CISOs can help a lot with that, having that conversation, being transparent uh, with their with their bosses about where the challenges are, right? And coming together as a group to talk about these things, right? You know, we just saw at the, at the recent hearings up on Capitol Hill about technology, the lack of sort of technological ease up uh, in Washington, D.C. is sort of stark. You know, you, we all, we're all in the industry, so we see it and we're like, oh, how can they not understand how the internet works? And yet, the same is true at some level of a lot of boards of directors. And so having a cyber knowledgeable person on every board of directors is a key, is a key piece. Having a risk committee that is watching the cyber threat is, is key. Um, and then, you know, for companies to think about, okay, how can I work with other companies that are like me, small and medium-sized businesses, and work together so we're sharing the risk um, and we're collaborating together so we can defend one another so it's not just me standing on an island alone, right? That may be bad enough for the big companies. But for the small and medium-sized companies, if they're on an island standing alone, they are in real trouble. And that is where it is today. And so we're working uh, as a company, but also with our other partners in the industry, to really bring people together. And you know, the work of the ISACs 
uh, that the ISACs are doing is really important, right? And in a lot of ways, what we're doing is a complement to what the ISACs do, which is the ISACs are bringing people together to have these really important conversations about what threats are being seen and the like. If we can help operationalize those in real time to help one small and medium-sized business defend another, work together, right, just through information sharing, then maybe eventually through collaboration or their MSSPs collaborating, that's a game changer. Yeah, I, I've I've had some ancillary touch points with some of the ISACs, and it's always been a very uh, positive experience of what they're you know, the missions are and what they're doing. Definitely strongly encourage people to get involved. In, you know, we're in their industry where they have, or maybe look at starting one for their own industry because it's uh, that again going back to that information sharing. I don't think we can beat that drum loud enough of how important that becomes. Um, and that, you know, certainly goes to like new and emerging technologies. And as we are kind of coming into 2020 with an election season, you know, there's been discussions of more of the, you know, electronic voting and different types of things that secure our election systems. But it kind of falls back. So do we, do we really understand the, the threats, whether real or perceived within that ecosystem? And, you know, how, how should we approach that? I mean, it's something that's inevitably going to come. Um, but I guess what are some of the risks and how do we help mitigate some of them? Across industry generally? No, I was saying with, with electronic sector. voting. Yeah, just, just with yeah, electronic oh, yeah. voting and that whole technology. You know? Yeah, no, look, I mean, it, it's so funny, right? You think about uh, the 2000 elections, right? And everyone was all uh, spun up about the fact that these hanging chads were the way that we were, uh, we were deciding votes. And that was such a problem. So we all said, OK, well, there's an easy answer to that. We'll go to electronic voting. And it'll be really easy because there's it's, it's, it's binary, right? It's either yes or no, vote for this person, vote for that person. It's all recorded in an electronic system. So no more worry about trying to determine the intent of a voter based on a, on a hanging chat. And now that we have all these electronic voting systems, we're, we're worried, oh, well, what happens if somebody gets in there and monkeys with it? What we really need is paper backups to ensure that what's in the electronic system is right. It's, it's almost like we've come full circle in the 20 years since the 2000 elections. Right. And so, well, we need to go back to paper in some form. But the real answer is it's somewhere in between. Right. Which is that there's certain certainly huge benefits from electronic voting. And we should not let, uh, you know, let ourselves give up on those. Right. At the same time, ensuring that we can audit those results. Right. And make sure that those those results are valid. That's going to create confidence in our outcomes. Right. And so I do think there's a lot of value in this idea of having uh, a paper audit trail and having uh, having you know, people come in and audit these things to make sure that we're getting the right results and if there are problems in the thing, we can identify them and get ahead of it. Uh, part of this, you know, you have, I think we have to all understand is that we are, as a nation, under attack by other nation states, in particular Russia, whose goal may be to do A or maybe to do B, but we know what their goal definitely is, is to undermine confidence in our electoral system, undermine confidence in our elected leaders, and undermine our confidence in the rule of law, what has made this country so strong, right? And if we allow them to do that by making us question the results of our elections, right, and making us not confident in those, right, that's on us. And that's on us from a bipartisan perspective, Republicans, Democrats, whatever party you might be in, right, we cannot allow another nation state to do that to us. And so we've got to push back on that and getting our elections right and making sure the states are able to have the resources they need to properly run elections and be able to audit them and make sure they're valid, I think is 100% in our national interest. And there's very little downside in that. So there should be bipartisan agreement on how to get there, right? And, and you know, regardless of where you end up in the politics of this, that's key for us as a nation. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think it's a good, good observation, too, in general, about how, you know, whether it be cloud technologies or any type of technology, people say, this is going to solve whatever problem. There's a cost. What's the total cost of ownership when you measure the risk of 
integrating new technology into your environment. We've certainly seen it happen with, you know, these, you know, I, I have a little bit of a selection bias in the amount of business email compromises I've done in Office 365. But, you know, to see people completely switching over to a new environment and it is easy and you can easily check a box that somebody's a global admin and it's not really thought about what that means. And then all of a sudden you have a massive wire fraud as a result of business email compromise. But it's it's how quickly we are as a society at times to adopt new technology without fully evaluating the risks. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's it's funny because there are huge productivity gains, right? We're making, you know, leaps and bounds in productivity gains uh, for our society by adopting, rapidly adopting technology um, and implementing it and moving forward. I mean, you know, you just, you, the things that we're doing today, the fact that, you know, the iPhone or the Android phone you have in your pocket every day has more power than supercomputers we used in the 80s and before that to model nuclear weapons, right, is, 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 is astounding, right? At the same time, like you say, there are vulnerabilities that come along with those, and there's no panacea. The idea that A will solve this or B will solve that, that's just not the case. And, and the, the same is true, by the way, of cybersecurity solutions, right? People want to say, well, look, if I buy this thing, will this solve all my cybersecurity problems? And the answer is, anybody that tells you that, you shouldn't buy from, because they're not telling you the real story, right? The real story is, that buying the cybersecurity solution is about buying down risk, right? The offense is almost always going to be in a better place than the defense. Defense will always be fighting hard to keep up and stay ahead or, or, or just stay, stay one step behind the attacker. That being said, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing the best and, and brightest in defense. You should, because if you're not, you're going to be leaps and bounds behind, right? And remember, it's not necessarily about being the fastest person in the group, it's about being faster than, than, than the other guys who the bear is trying, to is trying to catch, right? And so, you know, what you want to do is you want to implement the best in breed technology and stay ahead of the game, right? But what you can expect is expect perfection, not from a CISO, not from your SOC operations team. If you expect perfection, you will almost certainly be disappointed because that is not a reasonable expectation. Do you think part of that is too, is, is the way, you know, something I've at least observed in my time is, you know, it's, look, Nobody's going to RSA soon because it's a risk management conference. It's a cybersecurity conference. Sexy term, gets a lot of attention. Hell, I even got a podcast with the name of cybersecurity in it, so I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. But, you know, when we come down to it, a lot of it's talking about risk management at the business level. And sometimes IT people are not the best at really kind of quantitating that risk and discussing it. And is that is that something that you see happening? Um, and is it getting any better if you do? So, look, I think we're absolutely making strong strides. I think that you know, the fact that we've seen an insurance market start to come up, right, and it's not, it's not robust yet, but I think it will get there, right, that we're able to assess and evaluate and identify risk and price it at some level. Um, and I think that's an important part of uh, the role of cybersecurity professionals is to help uh, work with their C-suite and with their boards to understand the risk and understand that this is not uh, sort of a, a buy it all down overnight. This one tool will solve all my problems. But that it's it's about mitigating risk, and you're right. Uh, we, you know, our company too, Ironet's called Ironet Cybersecurity for a reason because it is about security. But we've never thought that any security system uh, would be perfect, right? We never, nobody thinks that their alarm system is going to stop the criminal from getting in, right, or or the like. It's designed to limit access, right? You put a chain on your door not because the deadbolt isn't good enough, but because it gives you an added level of security. Yet you know that a, that a committed attacker with a wire cut, with a bolt cutter, is going to be able to get in through that chain, right? You still do it because it makes sense. It's the right thing to do. It buys down risk. And if the person opens the door and rattles that and sees the chain, maybe they move on to the next house, right? And so the same is true in, cy in the cyber world. The problem is that we have sort of a conceit when it comes to cybersecurity and technology generally. 
we think that the traditional rules don't apply. It's not the same thing. It's it's something totally new and different. We can achieve perfection uh, because you know it's it's zeros and ones, and you know those are those are just two numbers. We can get to perfection there. And the truth is that just like in the real in the regular world, right? Cybersecurity is about risk mitigation and about limiting access. It's not about stopping everything all at the same time. And if you expect that, you're not gonna you're not gonna get there. And so. Uh, I do think it, it helps to have CISOs tell that story, but we need boards to understand that. We need the C-suite to adopt that and, and embrace that message because, you know, otherwise they're going to hold people to unrealistic expectations. Definitely. Jamil, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Where can people find you on the, uh, the old interwebs there? Yeah, so we're at www.ironnet2ends.com. Um, and uh, we'd love to chat with folks about about these challenges. You know, we've got some great leaders in the company who can come uh, talk to your folks about it. Um, we got, you know, General Alexander, um, his former director of operations. We've got some great private sector leaders uh, and Bill Welsh, who came out of Zscaler um, and, uh, and Duo. Uh, so we've got a great team, a chief product officer, Don Kloster, who's always ready to talk to customers about what they need, what they want. Because at the end of the day, right, you're, you're building a product. You want to build something that people actually need and will use not something that you think is awesome. And so, so there's a combination of that and, and we're ready to talk. And so anytime people want to find us again, www.ironnet2ends.com. Awesome. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes and uh, thank you again for taking the time today. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today on cybersecurity interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.